Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is May 19th, 2016, and this is episode 1790 of the Survival Podcast, and since it's Thursday, this is a listener call show. This is where I answer calls that you have called into the Think Line, that number being 866-65-THINK, 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. That is the Think Line. You pick up the phone, you call those numbers, and you will not hear, Hi, caller, this is Jack, you're on the air, because this is a podcast. It means it's not live, right? That means that you're going to call in, you're going to get a voicemail recording, and you're going to leave me a message. And uh, make sure you have a couple bars on your phone when you do that, because if you don't, you might cut in and out, and you'll actually hear two different callers that have a little bit of a cutout, but it's not that big a deal, and I was able to tell what they were saying mostly. So we went ahead and used those, but sometimes the cutouts are so bad you can't, so make sure you got like three bars at least on that phone when you make a cell phone call to me at the Think Line, and do speak into the phone. I know that sounds like it's really obvious, but... Ah, there is some head turning going on at times or things like that. And don't fade off. Just speak the whole time. And the biggest thing, make your point or ask your question immediately. Then give me your details. A classic example today. I opened up a file and a guy said, I have an international business question. That was the end of anything resembling a question. Two minutes later, which is longer than I usually wait, he was going on and on about some guy that he knew in China that was he's married to his daughter and he has this invention that's really awesome and it does these amazing things and it's been patented. Well, it was patented before, but it's been... <sighs> Delete. No question. If you're going to get on the air, you're going to have to ask your question and give me your details. You're going to have to do that because the only way we can make a show that goes this way with a pre-recorded call-in work. I've been doing this almost eight years now. The Survival Podcast, in fact, will have its eight-year birthday in just a little over 30 days, June the 20th, 2016, we will be eight years old as a community, as a site, and as a podcast. So trust me when I tell you how to do this. We've been doing it a long time together. Uh, so what are we going to talk about today? What are the calls on? Well, one caller says, what podcast does Jack Spierko listen to? It's a remarkably low number, and it's not that often, and I'll tell you why, but I'll tell you what to look for in a good podcast as well. Uh, first, start off by listening to this one, I guess. But uh, no, I mean, obviously, you, you, you do need variety in your life. And if you're a podcast consumer, you won't, may want to consume multiple podcasts. But some of this, uh, some of the problems that this gentleman's having with podcasts are the very reason I started this one. Uh, next up, uh, someone asked me about RVs for uh, preparedness, specifically making them stealth. Uh, we're going to have some interesting ways of looking at that concept and... Uh, Hiding in plain sight, so to speak, in you know the suburbs. Maybe who I don't know. There, we'll 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 take we'll tackle that one when we get to it. It'll make sense when you hear how the questions ask. Next up, someone asked me about uh, diesel trucks and trying to uh, narrow down what they're getting, but they're leaning toward Dodge half ton pickup. Which now uh, Dodge makes a half ton pickup with a diesel. It's actually a six cylinder eco diesel. 
It's actually a damn good motor, but you might be surprised at some of my thoughts on it. It's not just a yes, go out and get it because I love diesels answer. It's uh, make sure you really know why you're doing what you're doing here. Next, we have a question on junk silver. What's the best place to get junk silver? This is often overthought, and I'll give you a few sources, but I'll tell you why it really doesn't matter. Uh, you should just get the best price you can because you're buying junk silver. Uh, next up, uh, question on uh, premixed forage seed blends. For throwing behind your tr chicken tractoring activity, remove the birds we want to overseed. Uh, should we use this stuff we can get for uh, 50 bucks for a 25-pound bag at Tractor Supply just because it says all-purpose? All-purpose. Is it really all-purpose? And what does that mean, and what's actually in there? Uh, next, a uh, question on Bitcoin. What service do I use for Bitcoin for my wallet, and why? And then we have a guy that's growing some Rosa Ragusa, which is a plant I definitely recommend you grow for medicinal culinary values, etc. Uh, and just, it's a great plant overall. But he wants to know, well, these hips that are starting to grow on here, how do I know when they're ready to pick? And what do I, what do, I do with them after I have them off the, the plant? So we'll talk about all that more. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, folks, when I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was Safecastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you can imagine for your prepping needs. And with SafeCastle, I do mean everything. Check out SafeCastle.com today to learn more. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasoning, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode to get some context on our lives and think about more than just the next five minutes or the last five minutes. The year 1790, because the episode is 1790, and Alex Rugg has two for us today. At TSP Wiki, we have The Key to Liberty is More Than Revolution, which I really want to read because it's about the revolution in France, and we get tied up in our own revolution. But the second one is one of my favorite people from history of all time, one of the people I'd be most likely to want to sit down to a beer with if I ever had the opportunity to travel back through time and ask him questions about his life and what he observed. Say goodbye to Benjamin Franklin. couple bullet points. A UFO touches down in France. French peasants actually touch the glowing globe on fire. Uh, was it really? No idea. The first USA patent law is passed. You must prove your device is useful. Back to the drawing board. And Washington, D.C. is founded. Hooray! George Washington is authorized to select the exact site. But let's read Say Goodbye to Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin has been sick for a while. During the Continental Convention of 1787, he had to be carried to the hall in a special chair so that he could attend. A few years ago, when he was too sick to attend the July 4th celebrations, They arranged for a parade to pass by his window. He noted that the clergy of different Christian denominations with the rabbi of the Jews walked arm in arm. And a month before he passes, he writes to Reverend Stills, the president of Yale, I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we render unto him is doing good to his other children. Working to the last, he completes a letter to Thomas Jefferson regarding a question on diplomacy. His fever has worsened. He is having trouble breathing. His daughter, Sally, tells him she is praying for his recovery. He replies, I hope not. Then an abscess bursts in his lungs. There are no last words. 
only holding hands until he passes. His tombstone is simple. It reads, Benjamin and Deborah Franklin. He was 84 years old. My take by Alex Shrug. In case anyone was wondering, 20,000 people showed up for his funeral. I was going to write a list of Benjamin Franklin's accomplishments, but I can't do it justice in a few words. So I'll repeat the quote that Walter Isaacson used in his biography of Benjamin Franklin. It is something that Franklin wrote in his early years as a printer, an epitaph. The body of Benjamin Franklin, printer. Like the cover of an old book, its contents worn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here. Food for worms, but the work shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. Very interesting. Um, most people that have listened to this show for any length of time know that I classify myself religiously as a deist, and many of us point to some of our founders as being deists, specifically Washington, Jefferson, Payne, and Franklin often gets lumped in there. And if you do any research on this, you will find two schools of thought. You will find the deist who wants to assert, yes, Franklin was a deist, as though that proves that we're right as deists, right? And you will find the Christian that wants to prove, no, Franklin was a Christian. And it, it's interesting that, that they all tend to take little pieces of what they want. Alex Shrug did not do that here. Alex Shrug just put something relevant in a wiki, which has to be abbreviated in short for the purposes here. But I want to actually read to the, the entire quote that was written to Stiles to the end. I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we render him is doing good to his other children that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. As for Jesus of Nazareth, I think the system of morals and religion, as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw. But I have some doubts to his divinity, though it is a question I do not dogmatism upon, having never studied it, and think it needless to busy myself with it now, where I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble." Um, that would, by very definition, preclude Franklin from being a Christian, though he loved the Christian ideals, much as Jefferson did. Jefferson had the same opinion, the finest uh, code of morals that have ever been handed down to man. I think the truth in, in, in Franklin lies that he saw the division among the faiths and saw no reason for them, and simply believed that there must be a God and there must be justice in the universe because that's how he understood and interpreted things. Franklin was not a deist. He was not a Christian. He was not a Jew. He was not a Muslim. He was a man that believed in a God and sought not to define who that God was, though he was influenced by the heavy Christian influence uh, around him at the time and had having been brought up Episcopalian, had certain things set into motion in his mind because of that. So I, I think that Both sides do a disservice to one of our greatest founders and one of the most contributory members to humanity when they try to classify him into either location. We simply let the man's words speak for themselves. That's my take by Jack Spierko. It's a lot of people that want to go back and rewrite history to fit their current narrative. It doesn't really work if we take the totality rather than just the pieces that fit the narrative we're trying to write for ourselves. That's an important lesson from history. Oh, man can be summed up in a quote, and I've made many 
that I don't necessarily agree with now myself because my viewpoints and my belief systems have changed over the years. doesn't mean I didn't say those things in the past. doesn't mean that I don't still agree with the sentiment or the spirit of them, but components change as people change. With that, let's uh, move on. Going straight into it, as they say, and taking your first call. Jack, how you doing? This is Justin from Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, I want to know what podcast you listen to besides your own. Obviously, the TFT uh, is not the only podcast that we can listen to. Uh, but I want to know, you know, as far as business is concerned, as far as other topics, uh, you know, entertainment even, uh, what else do you listen to? Seems like every time I try and find a podcast to listen to, I don't like it. I don't, I find that cookie cutter, I find that there's not a lot of content. You know, is, is there anything that you could recommend that is like your content that actually talks about something? Let me know. Thanks. Well, of course the survival podcast is the only podcast you should listen to. You should be a hundred. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Of course. Um, so this is an interesting thing. First of all, I'll tell you, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I, I really don't. Um, and the reason is multifaceted. Number one, I spend about four to six hours a day producing a podcast. So like the mechanic whose car never gets its oil changed when it's supposed to, there's a point where I'm done with podcast stuff uh, to a degree, to a degree. The other thing is I, I know a ton of you guys – Listen to me uh, in a mobile environment. You have me on your phone. You dock me with your speaker in your car or whatever, and you you do that. And, and I used to listen to a lot more of everything when I was mobile all the time, right? When I was in my own vehicle, I would record in the morning, produce when I got to my office, and then on the way home, I had this hour and 15-minute drive, some nights, you know, two-hour drive home, and I would listen to other podcasts, and I would listen to radio and stuff like that. Because I hardly drive anymore. I put, I think, uh, 3,200 miles on my truck in the last 24 months just to kind of drive it home. And, I mean, I've driven more than that. But my actual, my vehicle, because Dorothy has the 4Runner, I have the F-350, uh, it was 3,200 miles. <laughs> I, 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 the guy's like, oh, you haven't been in here for two years for an oil change. I'm like, I just went over 3,000 miles, man. Um, so it's just kind of like, you know, I, I don't spend as much time doing the things where you're like, You're in that mode where you're doing something, but you have that freedom to listen and pay attention. And I'm doing so much research and work for my show, so that's one reason. The other reason is, you guys know my memory, right? So I'm a guy that can remember anything, especially if I heard it versus saw it, and if it was interesting to me. And I'll remember it verbatim. My, my wife will say something that will make me think of a line that I heard in a sitcom five years ago, and I'll spit out the other side of it, and she'll be like, what are you talking about? And it, it's weird to me that other people don't do that. Like, if you watch something that was entertaining, of course you remember that, right? You know, I mean, I sold my soul to Millhouse, right? Okay, you guys, <laughs> that's from The Simpsons, right? Uh, for five bucks, by the way. Uh, it, just that kind of thing. So one of my concerns is that I've always been very conscious of not lifting other people's material. So when I listen to other stuff, I actually have to pay more attention than I normally would because I'll find myself regurgitating it and not remembering why I remember it. So I don't want to ever come off like I'm lifting others' materials or things like that. So I'm conscious of when I'm listening to whom 
and that I'm processing it. It's not just in the background, kind of flap in there, going in and getting processed later. Okay, but what do I listen to? Um, as many of you know, my one of my biggest po uh, passions in life is podcast. Is podcasting? Is it is podcasting? It's permaculture and agriculture. So I listen to a lot of what Diego Footer does with Permaculture Voices, and I really enjoy that. I don't like every episode, as I'm sure not all of you like every episode that I do of this show. There's things you take and pick and choose from. So a lot of times I look at this, the subject and the title, but just as you guys have told me, there's times like, I don't think this one will be interesting, but what will happen is I'll put it on like I have a Bose. I should put a link to this thing. If you have like a smartphone or something, you're willing to spend the money and you want like an awesome sound system through Bluetooth, Bose makes this speaker system. It's like 300 bucks. It took me a lot to buy it, but I use this thing all the time. And I mean, it. you remember the giant speakers of the 70s and 80s, the big rack systems of the giant speakers? It sounds way better than those did. And it works with all your Bluetooth devices. I, I really like it. You don't have to spend that much money, but I'll put the one that I have in the show notes today on, on Amazon just so you can see it. And uh, so I'll have that out when I'm working in the in the yard. And another reason I haven't listed as much as usual, I'm, I'm usually doing things where I'm moving around a lot. So I, I don't like to wear headsets when I'm shoveling and stuff like that. So uh, I'll hear it. I'll leave. I'll come back. I'll be somewhere else. But if I'm working somewhere consistently, I'll put on like Diego's show or somebody else's show. And like the episode ends and it just starts playing the new one in the podcast app on iTunes. And then I'll end up hearing a show I didn't think I would like. And I'll be like, that was pretty interesting. And I'll learn a lot from it. Another show I've been listening to lately, partly because he's a good friend and I want to support him, but partly because it's great content, is Nick Ferguson's Homegrown Liberty. That's been a great podcast. Uh, another podcast I listen to that's really a radio show rebroadcast, rebroadcasted, right, is Free Talk Live. Um, that That's a show that I... I I go in and out of how much I like it. I mean, one of their strengths is they do so much with audience call-ins. One of their weaknesses is they do so much with audience call-ins. Because unlike me, they don't get to really screen the caller. Like if I get a person, I, I got a person today, not the guy that kind of went on and on. I'm sure that guy might call back in and just ask his question and get on the air. It's probably a great question. Just couldn't wait for it. But I'll, they'll get people, you know, I'll get people to call in like, Oh, you don't understand what you're doing, man. You're helping the CIA. And, you know, if you get somebody like that on live radio, you got to get rid of them, right? And then you have all the radio break, uh, uh, commercial breaks and all. But with the phone, you just hit forward, 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 forward. Okay. And then you're back to the content. So I, I listen to that. Uh, I occasionally listen to the Mead Maker podcast, but, uh, some of those get really boring, just to be honest. Some of the episodes are really great. And it's Mead Maker, M E A D M A K R. You know, guys that like to make mead. Um, there's a great uh, show on mead, but they don't have. Um, oh, they do, I guess. Uh, Got mead, Got mead live, but it's it, their, their their podcast feed doesn't work very well. I, I like them as well. I've been checking out a podcast recently called the Sustainable Living Podcast, and that's by a couple gals that I met out at Permaculture Voices, and I like what they're doing, but it's a lot of the stuff that I'm doing. Uh, and I also listen to the Dirt Doctor radio show by Howard Garrett. Uh, he has an AM radio show on the weekends here in Texas and syndicated throughout the country. And I learn a lot about gardening and organic gardening practices from Howard, not so much permaculture. And I really like Howard. Um, I never have time to listen to him uh, on the radio. I'm just never available when he's available. So when I found he was doing a podcast, 
Uh, I was really pretty happy about that. And I'll tell you, there's a guy on AM radio again. He's on Saturdays 8 to 1 in my market. I don't know. I don't think he's syndicated anywhere. But he does an automotive show called Wheels. And a lot of it is callers asking, like, do I buy the Toyota or the, 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 uh, the Nissan or whatever? And I, I, I don't really like that. But he does some really interesting stuff, including, you know, I love history. So Backside of History is a segment on his show. I really wish he would do a podcast, but he is only on radio. He's an older guy. Um, I, I don't really know why he's not syndicating his content as a podcast, though. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And this guy actually is an older guy. He's still really switched on with technology all the way back in the 80s. Ed actually developed, in, in going into the 90s, as the Internet actually started to take off, and we actually had browser technology going into the, the early, mid-90s, developed one of the first websites ever that you could go online and like choose like a, a Toyota Camry, and I want it in red, and I want this, and I want to price it. He developed all the technology for that, and the car companies told him he was crazy. Nobody would ever buy a car online. And, of course, that's what they're all doing today. So he is a technology guy. I guess, though, over the years, you, you stick to what you know and you get comfortable. I'd love to hear Ed. Um, another couple podcasts that are really good I don't listen to much, but I definitely could recommend. Uh, the Dangerous History uh, podcast with uh, Prof. CJ. He's uh, actually been on this show, and uh, he's a listener to the show. And I think that's another podcast inspired by us. So that's... That's a great podcast. I just don't listen to it as much as I, I should. And then one I've never listened to, but I've heard a lot from uh, listeners that have said, you know, when I've met and said, hey, have you listened to this uh, Hardcore History podcast? And I think Dan Carlin is the guy behind that, but I haven't actually subscribed to that, so I don't know if I've got the right one or not, but I think it's Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Those are probably pretty interesting, too. That's about all I can do for you on that one. Let's take another one. Hello, Mr. Jack Spirico. This is Steve in Arkansas. Haven't called in a long time. I wanted your opinions and comments on stealth RVs or RVs that blend in with the urban setting. Whether or not this would even be a good show topic. Uh, being able to survive under the nose of everything that's going on. Okay, talk to you later. Okay, um, you weren't specific, so there's actually three ways one could take this question. One is we're going to build up the prepper mobile, but it's going to be, it's going to look like, um, a regular RV. And if the shit hits the fan, we can kind of move around in it and not be a target. I think that's a terrible idea. You know, like the Stripes RV. Remember the Stripes RV from the movie Stripes with, uh, uh, Dan Aykroyd and, uh, what's his name in it, right? Um, I was Bill Murray and what's his name? Uh, the other guy that was did a lot of stuff with them in Uh, Harold Ramis, right? So stripes the stripes RV, the war vehicle. Well, I was going to put that aside. Assume that's not what you meant because it doesn't make sense to me. Then there's two other ways we can look at this. One is the way that stealth RVing is tossed around among RVers, which is basically camping for free without a hookup or what have you, and only you know finding a dump station when you need a dump and, and stuff like that. And doing that anywhere from on street corners to store parking lots and what have you. So we'll talk about that. Then the other way I guess you could take this is something like, and I've seen a lot of guys do this, it's kind of interesting, where you get something like a closed box trailer. And you convert that to a functional uh, you know, trailer type RV. But anybody looking at it just sees a cargo trailer. So I'll give you a few thoughts about that. So let's talk about, first of all, the stealth RVing concept Uh, as it's usually thrown around. 
what this is is, again, just kind of getting an existence without paying for it, other than you have to have an RV, you have to put fuel in it, uh, or fuel in your tow vehicle, and just like stealthily figuring out places that you can park for a day or two and then moving somewhere else. And some people use this to live in one city, uh, so they could save a lot of money that way. So one way a young person trying to save up to buy a house, for instance, could is to get a And your RV is going to have to be in decent repair to do this, or it's going to attract a lot of attention, right? But a decent-looking RV of some sort, and then to find a place to park for a day or two, and go to work, and come home, and then go park somewhere else, and then just keep moving around. Um, not necessarily the life I would choose for myself, but it's something that can be done. Um, I've seen people do this all the time in Walmart parking lots, Lowe's parking lots, and things like that. And if you don't try to stay multiple days, it usually isn't a problem. There's always the risk of someone jacking with your stuff or what have you. Another option is if you have, you know, public uh, lands in your area often. And we just had uh, some folks on that are traveling across the country in their RV. Uh, that was Jade and Kate Russo. They were on episode 1783-84, somewhere in there, 1784, I think, okay? And you can look that up and get a lot of information from them on that. They do a lot of public land camping. So on a 30-day month, they might only be hooked up five to seven days, and that saves them a ton of money in their lifestyle. But they're not doing a whole lot of the stealth RV stuff. They're doing some tell by the interview, you know, they might use a parking lot or something like that for a night where it's generally acceptable, but they're doing most of their uh, their camping uh, instead of being stealth, they're just going somewhere where it's legal to do, like national parks and things like that, and you can, you know, dry camp for a few days before you have to move. So that's that's another way to look at that. I think it's an interesting idea. I think it's something that you really need to know what you're doing to get away with. Now, I did find uh, two articles with a bunch of tips on this at a website called DonnieMeyer.com, and he's a minimalist RVer. Uh, he and his family have been traveling around the same RV for over two years now and having a really great time. They're also big coffee fans. And I'll put a link to two of his articles uh, from a couple of years ago now, 2014 is when these came out. One is How to RV Stealth Camp Like a Boss. That'll be in the show notes. And then... Uh, another follow-up article, How to RV Stealth Camp Like a Boss, Part 2, The Tips. So uh, that'll be another article that you can take a look at for ideas on that. I, I like what he has to say, and I would agree with it. I think it's too specific to go through all of it here on the air. So next up, the other concept that I think fits into this again is we take a, a cargo trailer, we turn it into an RV, and then no one knows it's an RV. I like this idea from a bug out perspective. I do because it's it's it doesn't lend itself to being something that's more uh, of a target of that there's people there and something going on and it actually might work pretty well for stealth RVing except here's the problem with it. Number one, if you actually drop trailer and someone sees a cargo trailer drop, they they have a tendency to believe well there's no one there. So they're more likely to want to go see what's inside it so they can take it. Uh, number two, um, if someone sees a truck with a cargo trailer parked in an area, they start thinking, well, is that a contract or what's going on? There's no signage on the side of the vehicle. Uh, maybe they're trying to steal something, whatever. So I actually think that <coughs> overall that an RV itself is more stealthy because it blends in. It looks like it belongs there. 
where like your big pickup truck with this big trailer on it kind of looks like, well, there's work going on or something. So if you can make that work in some way, yeah. Uh, certainly when you're hooking down the road with it, no one thinks, oh, that's a house. You know, that's a mobile house. Uh, and they, there is a, a cost analysis that can be done that shows that there's a pretty good case for building some of these if you're relatively handy. But I think your best stealth mode is in an actual RV because when people see an RV, well, it's supposed to be there. There's, they exist. Uh, now, this guy, uh, Donnie Meyer, has a pretty small Class A. So you're talking about a Class C is like, remember C for chop, right? So a Class, a, a class C is like you, you drive it, but you can't get from the cab you're driving in to the part people live in. A Class A, it's open. But he's got one of the smaller Class A's, and that makes it easier to maneuver and get into places and things like that. So that's probably why it works so well for him as he crossed the country sampling coffee. And he's now a coffee consultant. It's kind of an interesting business he has set up. But I like the idea. I don't know that I would do it, but I'd say it's something to kind of ease into and learn the laws of the land where you're at. It'd be a good piece of advice as well. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, I had a question for you about diesel trucks. I'm looking at getting a diesel pickup uh, in the near future, the next six months to a year. So I'm just going through everything and trying to weigh the uh, different models from uh, Chevrolet, Dodge, Ford. I think I've scratched Ford out um, just due to some of the maintenance issues that they have. Uh, but also Dodge has some, some transmission issues, though, it, though I heard that from 2009 to 2010 they're a little better. So um, I'm looking. I hear Dodge has a uh, half-ton uh, uh, 1500 in diesel. I just want to know what your thoughts were on those and, uh, and specific models and gears and whatnot. I appreciate it. Thanks. Okay, so I think everybody here knows that I am a huge fan of diesel motors in general. I used to drive a, a 2006.5 Jetta Diesel TDI, the personal mobile studio that the show was launched in. I currently have an F-350 Super Duty. I was a diesel mechanic in the military. So I have a lot of experience with and a lot of affinity for diesels, but they're not right for every situation and for everybody. Okay, so I'm going to kind of zone in on this half-ton diesel truck and give you some generalities in how to think about diesel vehicles in general. If you're buying a new vehicle, and you're going to buy something like a half-ton truck, unless you're planning on keeping it for like 8, 10 years or more, I don't know that I would be willing to pay the premium on a diesel. If you're going to lease it, then you have to take a really hard look at the lease payments. And this is why. You may find that you can buy a more expensive vehicle or, or drive a more expensive vehicle for less money with a lease than a lower expense vehicle with a lease. If it's a highly desirable vehicle, now I don't know how well these things are selling, how desirable they are from Dodge, what have you. This vehicle was released in 2014. It's a V6 diesel that was actually developed in mind of we're going to put it in a Cadillac STS. Yes, um, the company that makes the motor is now owned partially by Fiat, partially by Chrysler, and partially by GM. And that's kind of a strange thing, but yeah, it was it was originally like, we're going to put this in the Cadillac, which makes sense, and they should do it. Uh, and the reason they should do it is they want to sell that car well in Europe. They need to do it, because it's a, it's a highly European thing, right? Um, and it probably would do well here in the U.S. as well, but they haven't done it yet, to my knowledge. 
It has got tons of torque like you'd expect out of a diesel. From the reports I've read on it, it does a good job of offsetting what you call diesel lag. So when you drive diesels at lower speeds a lot of time, when you first go to accelerate, there's this hesitation. It's not really a hesitation because that would imply something's wrong. It's just you give it you give it some acceleration, and it kind of takes a second before it goes, and then it runs like a bat out of hell. So apparently they've done a good job of balancing that um, so that it doesn't distract from you and just make you – because I know you that was very, very evident in the Jetta diesels. Um, okay, but here's my question then. What are you going to do with this truck that you're stepping up to the, the torque of a diesel and expecting the advantages to pay off? It's a half-ton truck, so you're not going to haul that much weight. Um, the, the Magnum uh, V8, uh, Hemi V8 for that truck, will pull anything that the diesel will pull that the truck's capable of, if that makes sense. Um, what you get out of the diesel is you get fuel economy, which I don't think over a five-year period you'll get back over the gas motor. Okay, In other words, what you save won't make up about, from what I can tell, about $10,000 premium on the vehicle, nine, about nine to $10,000 premium on the vehicle. Here's why I'm not sure. When I go to, to Dodge's website and try to price this thing, the motor's featured there. It tells me it's optional in almost every uh, type of Dodge Ram 1500, every, every trim, but yet I can't actually get it to let me add the motor in the Build Your Truck software. So I don't really know, but based on the, the base price being like 37000 and the base price of a gas uh, version of that truck being about twenty seven, that's stripped down, uh, I would say there's about a $10,000 premium. So you have to look at the fuel economy and say, well, that, will I get $10,000 back based on how you're going to use the vehicle? Now, again, if you're going to lease this vehicle, that thing might have a huge buyback price on it. That's why people said for years, you know, I've said for years about not having debt and all, and people wonder why I have a Toyota 4Runner on a lease. Because I'm driving a $42,000 vehicle for $300 a month, and unless I break something really bad, I can take it back to them in three months, and they'll give me $1,500, or I can get another one. And when you do the math, buying that vehicle made no sense. Why? They have a huge resale value. The, you know, you have a vehicle under 45,000 miles that's a Toyota 4Runner. They, you get it back, they stick a sticker on it for 32.5 and they sell it. I don't know how. I wouldn't buy it, but they do. So that, that works out there. So you got to look at that too. But here's what you got to look at when you're buying a diesel truck. Every single thing you ever need done to it will cost you more money. Almost every part you need for it that's, that's based on the motor itself will cost you more money. If you take it to have service done, um, other than like an oil change or something like that, if you actually need troubleshooting and work done, there'll be usually in a, in a, in a shop one master diesel tech, they'll call him, like he's a master. There's one diesel technician, for God's sakes. It's all, but they always say it. Well, our master diesel tech's not available today. Okay, your you're one guy knows how to work on diesels. Quit calling him master, okay? You know, awesome, baloney, right? Okay, so your, your diesel tech, if he's not there or if he's backed up, you'll wait longer to get service done. None of this takes away from my love from diesels. It's just saying, like, make sure you know why you're doing what you're doing. Um, availability of fuel, etc. I think in trucks, diesels shine at like the one ton and above range where you have this big beefy truck that can haul lots of weight and more effectively than anything else, tow lots of weight. And that's what you're looking for. Or 
diesels in general when I want a vehicle that I'm going to own for a decade or more. And I still want it to be worth something when I get rid of it. A, a diesel that's run down to where it's ready to fall apart, somebody will still pony up five grand for it. Where a, a gas truck in that, that you almost have to give it away. Like a fifteen hundred bucks, come on, man. You know, you know what I'm saying. So that's that's where I'm at with that. So that's how I want you to think about this. But I would advise you, you know, you said you've heard about this Dodge truck. Go to a Dodge dealership and ask them about it. Is it actually available? What does it take to get one? What are what is the what are the lease and really look at the lease on this, unless you're sure you want to buy it. Just to drive this point home, when we got the forerunner, this is why we did a lease. In three years of driving that vehicle, again, we can trade it in or we can walk away and put $1,500 in our pocket. If I bought it, I would have paid $190 a month more to buy it for 36 months. Do that math. Okay? That's $6,840 more. Not total. $6,840 more. If I want to buy the vehicle at that point, if I want to convert it to a buy, I'm only $800 ahead. So I basically pissed away for the privilege of buying at $6,040. I have changed my opinion on leases a great deal when it comes to if you're going to have a new vehicle. We have an older truck because it's all we need. And then we have a new vehicle that I know when my wife's taking care of her dad and going here and there and picking up my grandson, I have no worries whatsoever that vehicle is going to get where it needs to go and it holds its value. So you, you got to really take a holistic look when you're making these decisions going forward. Personally, if I was in the market for a diesel truck, I'd be looking for one that's five years old with you know 80,000 miles on it that was taken well, well taken care of. And, and I think I'm going to get a better value out of that, but I'm not going to drive it every single day. So if you're going to drive it every single day, if it's part of a business purchase or something, if there's a tax write-off, things like that, it can make a lot of sense to buy a new one. I hope that all makes sense. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, Jake Robinson up here in Tennessee. Uh, got a question for you about silver. Where or how is the best way to buy junk silver? Uh, background, I like to accumulate silver, but instead of buying brand new, uh, you know, Morgans or silver eagles and things of that nature, I like to just buy junk silver pre-1964 or 64 earlier quarters and dimes and half dollars. Uh, what's the best way to do that? Um, I know you've talked about how to calculate uh, the price of the silver in the in the coins and then how to match that with the spot price and determine whether or not how much you're paying over spot, that sort of thing. And do you have any recommended uh, outlets out there that would be like uh, that would be formidable or be uh, competitive on pricing for buying uh, junk silver. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Okay, there's a lot going on here and a lot of misconceptions, not necessarily with Jake, but with everybody in the silver market. Let's understand a couple things about silver. The spot price of silver or gold or zinc or lead or copper is the price that a dealer would pay for raw material when they're buying like a thousand pounds or five thousand pounds of it. Okay? It's, it has nothing, 
directly to do with the price that uh, a coin shop owner will pay to buy your silver or sell silver back to you at. And that doesn't matter whether it's the spot price uh, on silver, gold, platinum, palladium, copper, brass, name it. Okay. Now, then there's another set of spot prices. There's actually a spot price on silver products. So there is actually a spot price for junk silver. There's a spot price for silver eagles. There's a spot price um, for just about everything out there. And generally, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of what, what you can expect to be paid if you sell it to a dealer. Not necessarily exactly the same, but somewhere in that, that, that area. Somewhere north of that number is what a dealer is going to sell it to you for. Why? Because dealers are not in the silver or gold business to provide you the service of holding on to silver until you decide you want it. They're in the business of making money. And that movement and that delta is how they make money. And the longer they hold inventory, the greater the chance they have to lose money. And the longer silver inventory is held by the general market, the bigger the delta will get if the price of silver has moved down because they're holding inventory they paid more for. So the whole market will kind of have a floor that it will go to what it's willing to sell for unless it goes down so low that they're screwed. At which time they begin buying like crazy because they're dollar cost averaging. So this is like if you're playing roulette, you put $25 on red. You lose. You put $50 on red. You lose. You put $100 on red. And and sooner or later, you catch back up and go ahead. If, if the roulette wheel didn't have those two damn green things on it, and if they didn't put a cap on how long you can do that for. okay. So that's what the silver guys try to do. If it goes way, way down, they really want to buy more so they can lower the overall investment per ounce they have in their inventory. So you have to understand the business as a whole is not about ripping you off. It's about surviving. It's a very tough market with very thin margins. So that's number one. Number two, you can determine the value of silver in a coin, the melt value, because these are 90% silver coins, so you can actually determine exactly what's the silver worth at spot price in a quarter or a thousand quarters. Go to a website, I'll put a link in the show notes, called Coinflation. Stick, stick the amount in there, use the silver melt value calculator, It'll tell you what the what the underlying spot price of the silver is worth. But, again, that is the price that a dealer would expect to pay for a large quantity of raw metal. Not refined into something nice, not minted, not stamped, not etc. That's the melt value. Okay. So now when we know that, we can also look at the spot price of junk silver. And you can go to Monex, who I don't recommend buying from, but they actually publish not just the spot prices of eagles and raw silver and what have you, but the spot prices of junk silver. We can kind of get a correlation of what's going on there. But in the end, what sets the price of a product is the market. So please understand that junk silver, the product of junk silver, is not just the underlying commodity, the metal inside the coin, but the coin itself. It has some level of collector value. It has some level of um, value because you know what it is. So when I look at a silver Washington quarter with a 1934 date on it, I have no doubt that it's actually 90% silver. right? So that has, that has a value add. And then even if it's old and kind of worn, it's still a 1934 quarter they don't make anymore. 
So there's still some little tiny numismatic value that can be had by a guy with a, you know, a table at a coin show or a gun show or something like that. So all of that's built into what the market demands for that product. In the end, you want to pay the least amount possible for the best product possible. So many times the best value on junk silver is, is found by finding a coin dealer, not a lot of times a pawn shop. But a coin dealer, pawn shops can be, but a guy that specializes in coins and sells sells all different kinds of coins um, will often have large volumes of these junk silver coins. They're buying them all the time. And if you're only buying a few dollars worth face value at any given time, the shipping will kill you getting it from anybody that's going to ship it to you. Okay, So finding that local shop is probably a good way to go. And then you can price shop online. Our sponsor, Jam Bullion, actually has great pricing on um, on silver, on junk, what you would call junk silver. The problem, um, the minimum amount they sell of a true junk silver product is a hundred dollar face value. So it's it's a it's a large um, purchase. It does come with free shipping. They do sell ten um, dollar face value of 90% silver coins, dimes and or quarters and or halves. Uh, but that's only in brilliant uncirculated. So you may or may not want that, but that's not junk silver. When we look at going to a circulated product, they're going to sell the same mix, dimes and or quarters and or halves, uh, at $100 face value for $1,368. That's a great price if you shop the market right now. And again, it ships free. So that's again a great price. Another important thing to understand about junk silver. Since it's a 90% silver uh, product, and since the dime is basically a tenth of an ounce, a quarter, a quarter ounce, a half dollar, half ounce of total weight, the face value is the same. A dollar's worth of silver dimes is the same as a dollar's worth of silver quarters, is the same as a dollar's worth of halves, is the same as a silver dollar. They're all the same amount of silver inside the coin, which actually most people have a more desirable thing for halves or silver dollars, and there is numismatic value there, but as a barter implement, the more fractional, the better. So quarters and dimes are actually better for that. Okay? So if you wanted large quantity, you could do a lot worse than just buying a $100 face value from JM Bullion. Okay? Now, the best place online to make purchases in smaller amounts of junk silver I have found has, honest to God, been eBay. And people need to get over whatever freaking fear makes them afraid of buying silver on eBay. They'll buy anything else on eBay, right? They would probably buy prescription drugs on eBay if it was available, Right? They would, they would probably buy a, a crib for their baby on eBay that they're going to put their baby in. But silver, oh, I'm going to get ripped off. What the hell do you think? It's still a commodity. Because there's a lot of guys on eBay selling silver that get silver cheap one way or another. Some of them do sorting. There is still some, some valid, you know, some use to that. But a lot of them are hitting estate sales and stuff like that. They're getting good deals on it. And that way they're willing to be a little bit more competitive. So what you can do is go and look at the melt value of the offering and then go maybe you know 5% over the melt value and make a bid. Or a lot of times when they have a buy-it-now price, you can still go under that a little bit and, and make an offer, and sometimes they'll take it. But in the end, shop around, and whoever gives you the best deal, that's who to take. If you're buying on eBay, look for a seller with a track record and good reviews. But again, understand the most important thing with junk silver, $100 worth of dimes, 
as a junk, a junk silver value, underlying silver value, the same as $100 worth of quarters is the same as $100 worth of half dollars. I personally think that junk silver makes a great piece of your silver portfolio, but it should be a small piece, about 5% of the total. I personally like bullion. Um, I, I, I like about 5% to 10% of my total silver holdings to be in like junk silver because it's divisible for barter if we ever get there. Then just for novelty, I like maybe another 5% to 10% to be in you know rounds that are different things and stuff like that that have interesting things to look at and things like that. Maybe another 5% to 10% in U.S. currency, but brilliant uncirculated with some numismatic value, not the high dollar stuff or anything, but just good-looking stuff. And then the balance of about 70 to 75% to be in you know Canadian bullion, U.S. bullion, things like that. Because there are certain advantages to that. Um, and they're the easiest to quickly sell at the best premium. You pay a premium, but you get a premium when you sell them. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Brad in Arizona. I'm calling today because I'm interested in building a chicken pasture for boiler chickens. Background, I've got a 50 by 100 foot spot on my property. It's got full sun. It's got a mix of Bermuda grass and various broadleafs that are deep tap-rooted, and my question is, is I see at Tractor Supply, they've got a basic bag of all-purpose forage, pasture, feed. If I just throw it out there and water it, do you think it'll take, or am I wasting $50? Thanks for your help, Jack. Bye. Okay, there's a lot going on there, more than it sounds like. Uh, There was that one cutout. That's the type of thing I'm talking about. But I I think what you said is, I'm trying to build a chicken pasture, not tractor. And I want to tractor broilers in it after I build it. That might be difficult. We'll get into why in a second. And it's about 50 by 100 feet. That is very, very, very much the uh, type of area that could be irrigated. You are in a dry, dry climate and I just don't know how dry or how hot. Um, because Arizona is like Texas. Which climate do you have? What part of the state do you live in? It's not as big or as diverse as Texas. But um, if you live Sedona and north, uh, or I would say north of Sedona, you are in a dramatically different uh, climate than if you live Phoenix and south, with some microclimates even south to Phoenix. So... If the the past or the, the, the let's call it a lawn, the big lawn is currently holding Bermuda, and Bermuda's not dying there, then it stands to reason you're getting enough precipitation that most of what's in this mix, and we'll get to that in a second, should be able to get by, should be able to survive if it's the right mix, because you didn't say anything other than it's a generic pasture mix, okay? But for this to really do well for you in a small area like that, I would definitely consider irrigation. All right, now here's the other thing. Right now, if you take this seed mix and throw it out there and expect anything good to come of it, it's likely that it will not. It's going to be hot. You're going to have summer. You're going to have your dry season. The seed's going to sit there and bake. Birds are going to come and take it away, etc. That doesn't mean you should not use it, but throwing it out on the ground without any disturbance, without any uh, plowing, without any disking, uh, without any animal disturbance like the chicken scratching it, Right now, not a good idea. If what you're saying is, I'm going to go get my chickens, I'm going to put them in some tractors, I'm going to start tractoring them, and I'm going to come behind them after they've disturbed the soil, and I'm going to seed, now we're starting to get somewhere. 
and you still might not have a huge takeoff of this seed because a lot of this stuff is going to germinate better in your fall or your spring than your summer, but most of it, if you throw it into that disturbed soil and possibly hit it with some other things, and some things that I would add to maybe this mixture might be things like oh millet, maybe a little little bit of buckwheat, um, fast-growing, warm-season stuff that'll kind of provide cover that'll then kind of go away into your fall and just lay on top of this other seed that just kind of sits there, yeah, it might actually start to really diversify your small pasture, your 50 by 100 foot pasture. If you're going to irrigate this, then it really is going to take off for you. So there's just the first way to, to see this. I would use the chickens to establish the pasture. I would not try to make a pasture before the chickens get there. The chickens, through their disturbance, are going to do a couple of things. One, they're going to find a lot of weed seeds that are in there that are not ready. They're not German in germination state right now. The ground is seed banks. There's there's millions of seeds laying all over the place on the ground at any given time from natural occurrences. And there's what's called germination triggers. And what that means is if you burn the vegetation in area and you wait, in some time a whole bunch of stuff will come up. And those were weed seeds that were deeper in the ground that were triggered by the burn to come up. If we just plow an area and plant nothing, stuff will start coming up like crazy. You know, and why? Because the soil disturbance caused it to germinate. That was a germination trigger. If we compact an area, right, we, we pound it flat, hard. A lot of stuff that's living there will probably die, and then new things will come up. These are decompactors, and their trigger is the compaction. If we crop an area, we actually plant a crop there, and then when the crop goes away, we don't do anything. We leave it alone. A whole new set of weeds will show up because they've been triggered by the cropping and the extraction of nutrient by the crop. Okay, The chickens are a disturber. So they're going to do two things. They're going to trigger disturbance germinating trigger seeds that are in the ground, and they're going to eat a lot of seeds that are in the ground. So they're going to take a lot of undesirables out. So if they create the disturbance and you go behind it and seed it, then you're going to start to get somewhere. So then my next question was, well, what the heck is this, you know, this mix that you speak of? What's in it? And my initial inclination was it's going to be a whole crap ton of cheap annual ryegrass. You can usually buy a 50-pound bag of annual ryegrass at Tractor Supply for about $30 and a little bit of some other stuff. Not so much if you have what, you, what I think you might have. Um, what I found was groundwork, all-purpose, forage mix, north. I don't know if others you have or not. It's the only one I can find online. Problem was it didn't tell me what was in it. But somebody... Um, who's from Panama City, Florida, by the way. So I would assume that even though they call it North Mix, it's all over the place. Um, was good enough when somebody else said, what's in this, to post a review that's not really a review. It just tells people what's in it. And it is 35% fawn tall fescue. That is a perennial bunch grass. 25% striker triploid annual ryegrass. That's an annual grass. It grows and it's gone, so a quarter of its annual rye. And then 19% Potomac orchard grass. So that means about 55% is bunch grass. And they are both perennials. So they will come back and they will likely, because your Bermuda will, will kind of go away in the winter, form these little islands and pockets and create diversity. But you're going to get this really tall, like, 
kind of like pampas, like miniature pampas grass type thing going on. So you're either going to have to cut that or continually graze that or some level, or you're going to have like all this clumpiness to it in these really high spots and these really low spots. But that's okay. I just want you to know you're going to get that. Um, you're also going to get, um, oh, I'm sorry. It's, yeah, that's exactly right. It's 19% orchard grass, 7.9% renegade red clover. That's a self-reseeding semi-annual or, or biannual clover. So that's a good thing to have, but it's not an expensive seed. And then you're going to get um, 5.2% crimson clover, very small amount of crimson clover. Most feed stores, you can buy a 50-pound bag of crimson clover for 50 bucks. I'm just saying. Uh, and then 5.2% Dutch white clover and 0.8% other crop seed and 1.5% inert matter. Overall, it's not a bad mix. I would augment it with additional clovers, and I would use it as something to, to come behind the birds with. And with a small pasture, like 100 by 50, I would really consider irrigation, especially in Arizona, unless you're in like a part of Arizona where it's like, this is Arizona, because I mentioned the other day, when I was in Flagstaff, I was the first time in my life, I was like, this is Arizona? This is heaven. This is beautiful. Right? And I was in Phoenix, I'm like, how does anything live here? You know, everybody's yard is like pebbles. They call it zeroscaping, right? So where you live, that, that has a lot to do with this. But overall, it's a good idea. But if, if what I don't want anybody to do, especially, especially in summer, is to think you can just go buy a big bag of seed and just broadcast it over an area and it's just going to grow. You have to time this right. You want to time it to meet with your rains. And the best thing in the world you can do is you see like you have, like, when you get one of those weeks where you're going to get, like, rain, like, seven days, like, six out of seven days, and you wait for the first day that it rains and the ground's wet, and you go out and broadcast that seed, and then the rain comes after it, if you're going to straight broadcast, that's your best bet, with the temperatures being right and, and everything else. Um, your best bet is when you get disturbance, and the seed makes dirt contact, soil contact, and especially if you get something back over it. So... A great way to do this with chicken tractoring is you come behind your birds, you throw your seed, and then you kind of step it in. And then if you have the time, the patience, the materials, you throw some cover over it. This could be as easy as we're going down one strip of the field and the other strip isn't going to get grazed for a long time. We take a hand sickle or like a rice knife and we cut a whole bunch of it like straw and throw it on top of where the chickens just were and step that in. We'll get a lot more... Um, germination, your germination will go up anywhere from 50 to 75% if you harrow seed with any material uh, other than, let's say, a giant rock that prevents it from, from germinating. If you cover it with anything reasonable, it creates an extreme potential for higher germination rates. So instead of going out there and doing all this work and tilling up this Bermuda grass that's already growing, let the chickens do the work, put the seed behind them, and again, I hope that one makes sense. Oh, hey, Jack. This is Matt in Wisconsin. My question is, what kind of Bitcoin wallet do you have and recommend? So I went to buy my first Bitcoin and uh, downloaded a, a wallet called Bitcoin Core, and it needed 80 gigs of space on my computer, so that was a no-go. Um, I have a basic understanding of, you know, the technology, I suppose, and monetary aspects, but I'm just not familiar with practical uh, aspects. So 
Uh, I know you have a wallet. I know you've talked about it on the show before. I don't recall you giving a specific recommendation regarding wallets and services, so I was just looking for some advice along those lines. Love the show. Thanks a lot. Peace. Okay, so with Bitcoin, I don't fancy myself to be a Bitcoin expert, especially on all the different ways you can use it and, and transact with it and what have you. I've used what I believe is the most reliable, proven, safe, secure, and simple system that I could find for myself, and it's called Coinbase, coinbase.com. Um, Coinbase is extremely secure. When I log into my Coinbase account, there's an app that you have to put on your, your, your smartphone called Authy for like authorize, right? And when you go to log in, it sends a code to your phone. You then have to enter that code to get into your account. This means if somebody got your your login and password for your Coinbase account, unless they also had your cell phone at the same time, and by the way, the passcode to get into your cell phone, uh, they would not be able to get to your, your Coinbase account. It also gives, us, gives a lot of tools, um, Something got jacked up with my payment button, but I wanted to put a payment button so people could do MSB with it. Uh, they made it easy to do that. I probably need to fix that. But I don't get a lot of Bitcoin businesses as it is, so uh, I haven't been motivated enough yet. I just usually tell people, here's a wallet address, send me the money, and I'll, I'll manually activate your account. That's how I've been handling up till now. Um, so it, it, I did like that it had merchant tools because I may do some other things with it in the future, and I like having the ability to accept payments in a more... Um, I guess, choreographed or laid out way, uh, just to, to make sense out of that. They're, they also have a feature that I really, really like in Coinbase called vaulting. So the way vaulting works is, you know, you build up a certain amount of money. You say, okay, now I've got like $3,000 worth of Bitcoin. Well, I, so if I'm not spending it very frequently, I might want to take $2,500 of that $3,000 and make it uber secure. So the way vaulting works is you say, I'm going to create a vault, and I want to move you know, X amount of Bitcoin into that vault. When you do that, you tell Bitcoin two different email addresses. And then when you decide, I want to move that money out of the vault, just understand you've tied your money up for 48 hours. Nobody's going to run off with it. It's just to make it secure. And you do this if you want to. When you do that, and you say, okay, take it out, you'll get a text that will give you a code. You'll get an email to both email accounts, okay? You have to authorize a link click from both of those email accounts. And then a process will start, and 48 hours later, that money will come out of the vault. I've moved money in and out of the vault just to make sure it all works like it's supposed to, okay? I didn't start out by putting all my money in the vault. I put like uh, 50 bucks worth in there and make sure I can get the hell back out the way they say I can and understand everything before I put it Did that, it worked just fine. That is uber secure. I mean, that is uber, super secure. This Imagine what it would take if I had my money in a vault and you, you got into my Coinbase account and you wanted my money out. You would have to have hacked both of my email accounts, have my phone, and have access to my Coinbase account. And then, over the next 48 hours, it will send multiple alerts to my email and to my phone saying, hey, remember, uh, several hours from now, this is going to happen. Do you really want to do this? At any point that I get one of those alerts, I can log back into my Coinbase account and say, cancel. Don't do it. Don't let it out. Something's wrong. I don't know of any banking institution in the world that offers anything that's secure. Another thing Coinbase allows you to do is link directly to your bank account. 
This means you can sell Bitcoin and move it into cash. This means you can take cash and bring it over to your Bitcoin account, just like having two different bank accounts and two different banks and being able to wire money back and forth. Okay? I, now, what people will say is, well, if you receive more than X amount, you get a W-2. This is on-grid Bitcoin type of thing. Yes, it is, but I'm not using Bitcoin to try to hide it from the government. Okay? Now, if you want to do that, what you want to do is, you know... Uh, what you'd call the paper wallet thing, where you have a mnemonic device you remember and your money's locked up in the ether of nowhere. Um, and if you have that done, you've got to be careful with how you do that. Um, there, are, there have been people that have uh, stole Bitcoin by using mnemonic devices that are very common things, like Peter Piper picked a peckled pepper or something like that. And, and so it would have to be something that's unique to you. And then it's almost impossible for that code to be broken. And what makes that exciting, if you ever did need to leave the country, is you could lock it up with one of these mnemonic devices. And I'll say I've never done this before because I've had no need to. Probably should just so I know how to. And then you could just basically have no record of it. You could have this mnemonic device in your mind. As long as you remember it, you're good. You could have no paper, no paper trail, no hard drive, nothing. You could be wearing shoes, socks, you know, underclothes, shorts, and a shirt carry your passport, get it on an airplane, step off that airplane in Japan or Australia or wherever, and claim your Bitcoin, and nothing anybody can do about it. And then you can move it into any kind of normal device you want. But I use Coinbase. And I think for getting started with Bitcoin, it's the easiest, most proven, safest, and feature-rich thing you can do. And I don't know what this 80-gig crap on your computer is, but there's absolutely no need for you to put anything on your computer to use Coinbase. You do need to put Authy on a smartphone, and that's for protecting your security. Which, by the way, I don't know why banks aren't doing this. Now, actually, there is a third-party authorization services that you can use for many things that don't technically offer them. Um, but it's not integrated fully. And I, I, if I were banks... I would be doing this right now. And I think Authy is actually not directly associated with uh, Coinbase. They're their own independent thing. They sell that service to Coinbase, this, this third-party authentication service. And it's, it's fantastic. It's absolutely a fantastic thing because Authy can't see your login information. All it knows is a login attempt occurred. And the login attempt creates the code which is then sent to both you and Coinbase, you have a certain amount of time to use it and it automatically renews until you get it right. It's, it's, it's a fantastic security me uh, feature. Coinbase.com. And it's that simple. And there's plenty of support documents over there to tell you how to use everything. Hey, Jack. I had a question on Rosa Ragusa. Got a bunch of them that we planted, and uh, the flowering great and starting to get some hips on them. I'm just kind of curious when you pick those hips. And um, you talked a little bit about what you can do with them, but any suggestions on you know storage, if it's best to dehydrate them, use them fresh, what the best way is. But mainly just kind of when you're, what you're looking for on harvesting. Appreciate it. Have a great evening. So rose hips, whether it's Rosa Ragusa or just about any variety of rose, will we'll start out green. They'll turn a little bit of yellow-orange, then they'll turn to an orange, a deep, pretty orange, and then they'll turn to a pinkish-red, and then they'll turn to a deep red. Deep red is when they're ripe. And just Google ripe rose hips and click on images, and you'll see exactly what they should look like. 
Uh, and, you know, once you know, you know. It's not, it's not hard. And they'll get a little bit soft. Not really soft, but if you feel them when, before they're ripe, they're really, really firm. They'll give a little bit more when, when they're ripe and, and they're ready. And if they go too long and they start to shrivel, they can still be used for teas and things like that. It's no problem whatsoever. You probably wouldn't want to eat them fresh, and we'll talk about that in just a second at that point, because they get kind of, you know, dried. Um, but they're fine for teas and things like that. Now, there's different ways we can use them. First, the myth. Rose hip seeds are toxic. No, they're not. Do they contain cyanide? Yes, yeah, so does a lot of other shit. And the amount of rose hip seeds that you would have to ingest directly, let alone indirectly, to give yourself cyanide poisoning precludes the use of rose hips for cyanide poisoning unless you specifically extracted it. It's BS. The genesis of the myth is rose hip seeds have these little hairs on them, and they will absolutely make you choke your brains out. And if somehow you manage to get them down your throat into your stomach, they will irritate the shit out of your stomach and make you puke, and they'll make you puke little furry, spiky things that stick in your craw as they come up. Not good. Now, people use actually rose hip powder ground rose hips uh, medicinally and in other things as well, but I'll leave that as a side for now. So there is a use to those seeds, but whole, they're a problem. So the easiest way, the least time-consuming way that there is to store your rose hips is to pick your rose hips, pick them all, as many as you can at a time, and either put them out on a screen in the bright sun in a dry environment or pop them in something like an Excalibur dehydrator, dehydrate them until they shrivel up, and then put them in like a jar or something like that, and you've got dehydrated rose hips. You could put a desiccant in there. You could put an O2 absorber in there. If you have a vac sealer or a, a dry canner, you could dry can them in a jar uh, to make them last longer. But in the end, dried rose hips last a long, long, long time. To use those dried rose hips, the best way to use those would be for making tea. And you simply, when you're making tea, um, you if you wanted some rose hip flavor in it, Take one or two rose hips, throw them in your hot water with the balance of everything else you're making tea. Throw maybe four into a, 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 a cup if you're doing just rose hip tea. And the rose petals dried make interesting tea as well. That's the easiest, least time-consuming, not making yourself angry way to store rose hips as actual rose hips. To use them for other things, including tea, and take up more less space, what you want to do is cut them in half. And then take some type of implement. A lot of people use the back end of a spoon and get all the seeds out and then dry them up. And they're going to take a lot less space up because a rose hip is 70 to 80% of its bulk is in seeds, which we don't really want. But making tea with those seeds, and there's not a problem because we're not going to consume them. Uh, if we want to use rose hips fresh, you can either peel them like that or you can do what my grandmother used to do, which is she used to just take a sharp knife and just not worry about trying to get every stinking piece. And just kind of cut around it like a squirrel would nibble on a nut. Okay? And she used to make rose hip soup, which was served like room temperature, not hot. And it was actually kind of sweet uh, out of rose hips. She also used to make jellies uh, out of rose hips and use rose hip in other jellies to add vitamin C to them and flavor and tartness and things like that. They kind of taste like somewhere between uh, citrus and a crab apple in their flavor with a little more sweetness. And they don't taste bad fresh. And again, you can kind of nibble them like a squirrel around the seeds if you want to to try them fresh. But that's not my favorite way to use them. I like them mostly in tea. A way to, to use rose hips without hating yourself, pulling seeds out of them, and have a different product than just a dried rose hip 
is you either make a jelly or a syrup out of them. And in that case, you just you know put in rose hip syrup recipe or rose hip jelly recipe online, and then you find that. And because as part of the process, you're going to strain the seeds out, they're not a problem. So that'd be another way. What I usually do is pick them, dry them, put them in a jar, use them in teas. That's that's the number one thing we do with them. And you can always make tinctures and extracts, etc., from those whole rose hips. Okay? And again, I would not make a tincture of a huge amount of rose hips with alcohol because you could, in theory, end up with a significant amount of cyanide. But you would have to go out of your way to do it. If you follow any recipe, any long-time recipe for any use for rose hips, you're not going to have to worry about that. Another thing. If you wanted to make a strong rose hip tincture, and I'm not sure why you would, and you had a whole bunch of dried rose hips, once they're dry, the seeds come out actually remarkably easily because they crack, and then you can basically just shake the seeds out of them. So if you're only going to dry them anyway, then to me it's actually easier to get the seeds out once they're dried than before they're dried. That's just me, though. So that's all about rose hips, probably more than you need to know. But why would we care? Um, three rose hips have more vitamin C in them than a great big giant orange. And remember, there's only a little bit of the rose hip that's actually the hip. Most of it's seed. Uh, so it's incredibly nutrient dense. Uh, it does a lot for flavoring. It has great medicinal values as well. And it's something that we should all be growing because... It's one of those things that's like part of a pharmacy in our backyard, but everybody else just sees it like a rose. Now, Rosa Ragusa, very wild, very strong, old English cottage type of rose. Little tiny thorns instead of big ones. Billions of them all over everything is just coated in these thorns. And if you want to secure areas like a window and you plant a whole bunch of Rosa Ragusa under there, there ain't going to be nobody peeking in your window. So that's another reason you might want to grow them. And they can be very inexpensive. I bought a hundred rows of ragusas uh, from Coldstream Farm for I think it came out to like sixty-five cents a plant about two years ago. I planted like seventy of them. I have them all in a swale, one single swale of rosa ragusa. I'm looking for the one with the biggest, best tips, and I'll be propagating that uh, as a as a selected variety. So that's part of what I'm doing with them. And then they're also going to be a living fence. And then I gave away the other 25 plants, just gave them to students that came here as a thank you for coming here and uh, helping us out. Because what am I into them for? 60, 65 cents a piece? So it's it's a great plant in many different ways. With that wrapped up, I want to remind you, if you like this show and the work we do, please consider supporting us. It does take a tremendous amount of work to put these shows together every day. It really does. Best way to do that, join the Members Brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And for about 18.3 cents an episode, you can support this show, and I'll get you so many discounts. Uh, there's over 60 companies in there right now. You're probably buying stuff like that anyway. Maybe not all of them, but some of them. If you, uh, if you use the discounts throughout the year, you'll more than pay yourself back the cost of doing business as a member, which is $5 a month or $50 a year. You get a discount to sign up for a whole year. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders, all of you qualify for a discount. Just email me at TSPC service discount. I'm sorry, put TSP service discount in the subject line and email me at jack at the survival podcast.com. 
com. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code to save you even more money on a great product. We give uh, first responders a 25% discount on all membership terms uh, for the Members Brigade. And remember, you can pay by silver. If you click on Members and go to the bottom, you'll see a link to pay by check, money order, and silver. And we take two ounces of silver uh, for uh, one year of the Survival Podcast. That in itself is a discount. I think silver's at 16 bucks. So 32 bucks a year if you pay by silver or $3 face value in silver. And now you know why we do that after today's show. You probably know more about junk silver than uh, you ever have before after today's show. Next up, the easiest way, the way that makes so much sense. If you listen to this show every day, there's no reason not to do it. If you're going to buy something on Amazon, not because I said so, just because you decided, oh, I want this, I'll get it on Amazon, go to tspaz.com. Amazon.com will appear on your phone or your, your computer. Do your business. That's it, and we'll get credit for your sales. And that's great, because Amazon gets advertising on every show. I get credit for the sale. We make some money. You pay the same price. You type in one less letter. How easy it is, is it to support what we're doing that way? And on supporting uh, the work we do, also supporting the audience and other members of your community, I believe we should keep business in the community. Uh, we have the TSP Business Directory. It is on the website, but you can get there with a shortcut by going to uh, tspbiz.com. And there's lots of companies listed in the directory. Your company can be listed there for as little as five bucks. A place to f uh, find members of the audience to do business with and to be found by members of this audience, which is 150,000 people. And you can list your business there for five bucks. How insane is that? And frankly, we only it required five bucks because it got rid of all spamming like instantly. Today's featured business directory supporter is Pete Poultry, a small scale breeder of black astrolops, Rhode Island Red, and Wells Summers. They selectively breed for the best traits to deal with local environment in North Carolina, but they also ship seasonally. You can check them out at the TSP Business Directory. There'll be a link in the show notes. Let me tell you something. Well, summers are beautiful chickens. If I ever went back into breeding chickens and I was going to be selling chickens, well, summer is a breed that I would definitely be working with. A little like extra business idea. I've put, put this out before. If I was going to go back into chickens at all, I would run them all in tractors. It's the only way I can do it here without I'm screwing everything up. I would run small groups of hens with a rooster per group. I would then breed that rooster to my hens, and I would hatch 30 to 50 eggs at a time. I'd put them in a larger tractor. I would raise them up to about 8 to 12 weeks. I would sell them as pullets about ready to lay. And the last time we sold birds like that, we made $15 to $20 a piece on our birds. And I would take roosters, and I would say, if you buy more than four, if you want a rooster, I'll give it to you for free. If you just want a rooster, he's $5, and all my extra roosters, be eating free chicken enchiladas for the rest of my life. And Wells, and I would, I would not just do what, you know, uh, what do you call them, red sex links or whatever. I would do pretty unique chickens that are not generally available at the local feed stores and tractor supplies. Uh, and Wells Summer was, when I wrote that article about that, was right at the top of my list. On that note, um, I'll save the information, but I have an article out today on the Nine Mile Farm blog. If you want to see it early, go to ninemile.farm, click on blog. It's the article's up there on making most of the problems in your gardens go away. But I have lots of questions on this, so I'll be putting that in tomorrow's show. Really simple, easy stuff to use, you know, available anywhere and available on Amazon. That will make 95% of your garden issues just go away. And uh, now for our song of the day today. Uh, I've been waiting to play this one for a while. I've been waiting for something to really kind of sync to it, you know, mix up with it on the show. It just hasn't. I like the song, so I want to play it. Uh, it's by Steve Earle. 
And it's probably his only really, really, really big hit. Uh, it's called, of course, then, if you know Steve Earle, Copperhead Road. You want to feel old? You want to feel old? It was released in 1988, guys, those of you that know the song well. 1988. Which means um, it's 28 years since the song was released. <laughs> That'll make you feel old. Um And in 1988, you know, memories of the Vietnam War were still a lot more fresh in the minds of people than they are today. It, it had been a while, but, um, you know, it was a lot more in the minds of people, and that comes into this song. Um, there's some interesting lyrics in this so song. It's, of course, about a guy making moonshine. It's about this guy's father um, and uh, his grandfather and, and him and his grandfather both, uh, or sorry, his, his father and his grandfather both had been made moonshiners. His father ends up uh, dead, being chased by the law, run and shine. Um, but there's a line in it that's really a dumb line. It, it, it doesn't make sense at all. Um, <laughs> it says, uh, you hardly ever saw granddaddy down here. He'd only come to town about twice a year. He'd bought a hundred pounds of yeast and some copper line. Everybody knew that he made moonshine. Um, the idea of buying a hundred pounds of yeast just doesn't, doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense, but that's just being nitpicky. Um, but it's always something that's always stuck in my craw because otherwise I love the song. Um, A hundred pounds of yeast is a lot of yeast. Uh, I think maybe he could have kept the, the rhythm of the song just fine, saying he'd buy a couple pounds of yeast and some copper line. Uh, but I guess he's trying to make a big deal. This, this tells me, I don't know if Steve himself wrote this song or he had a writer that wrote this song, um, didn't really know much about making moonshine because there's just no need for a hundred pounds of yeast. I mean, that's something like Jack Daniels uh, dist uh, Distillery might be purchasing a hundred pounds of yeast. Um, I mean, a pound of yeast will make a lot of wash. Um, but in the song, of course, his uh, his father ends up dead, uh, running whiskey in his big black Dodge. It was actually a sheriff's car before they bought it at the Mason's Lodge. And um, But the last stanza is, I guess, part of why I loved it. We used to listen to this song at the NCO Club in, in Panama a lot uh, when I was in the Army. And I'm just going to read the whole thing to you. I volunteered for the Army on my birthday. They draft the white trash first round here anyway. I'd done two tours of duty in Vietnam. I came home with a bland, brand new plan. I take the seed from Colombia and Mexico and planted up the holler down Copperhead Row. And now the DEA's got a chopper in the air. I wake up screaming like I'm back over there. I learned a thing or two from Charlie, don't you know? You better stay away from Copperhead Road. So his daddy was bootlegging shine. He's bootlegging grass. And uh, he's taking a different approach to this, so he's less likely to end up like his dad did. But he's still an outlaw. Now here's what gets me with this song. For years and years and years, this country has made the growing possession, selling, and use of a plant illegal and punishable by incarceration. And that irrational behavior is slowly beginning to fade away. More and more states have legalized it. The uh, federal government is now getting to a point where it's ready to uh, reclassify Uh, marijuana away from Schedule One, which basically is the like the most dangerous, worst classification a drug could have. 
It's preposterous. So, it, 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 you know, it, marijuana is actually classified by the government legally is worse than methamphetamine. Because methamphetamine has legitimate medicinal uses. According to the federal government, marijuana doesn't. But here's the thing. For a guy to be the age of the character in this song, a Vietnam veteran, it's highly doubtful that his father died running moonshine. Because he'd be running moonshine, what, in the 40s, 50s, 60s? Well, by then, prohibition was gone. Moonshine was a product of prohibition. There was no moonshine before prohibition, and there wasn't much of it after prohibition. Now, don't get me wrong. There's history and there's tradition, and a lot of us occasionally make some fuel that accidentally spills in our mouth. Just saying. Okay? But running shine for profit, in spite of the TV show you saw, it's just not something that's done much anymore because there's no market for it. All the illegal activity that, that, that wrapped up itself around running moonshine and illegal liquor died when Prohibition died. Something to think about. I'll let you connect the dots as you listen to this song. And I'm just hoping that sometime in the future, if somebody writes another song that, that, that circles around the ending of this one, that it's so far into the future that it has to be done the same way. We're looking back and we're overlapping two eras because it's kind of insane that the DEA has a chopper in the air to find people growing a plant. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Hey, Ru. 